The rest of you, while they're making their way out, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Thank you for standing as we open God's Word together. This is a passage about uh, the Lord's Supper, but I want us to see it within a context of a broader section of 1 Corinthians, and that is instructions about worship. And what's happening in this text is the Lord's Supper, which we will partake of together, uh, quite interestingly, not at supper time, we'll partake of the Lord's Supper, the Lord's, supper, the Lord's Table together on um, Easter Sunday during the sunrise service. That's one of my, the different times that we partake of communion. One of my favorite is during the sunrise service on Easter Sunday. And I uh, hope you'll make plans to be a part of that. I want us to see it within the context of this broader spectrum, if you will, of worship and the worship difference, the difference worship should make in our lives and the difference that knowing Jesus should make in our worship. And the Lord's Supper just is one of many illustrations that we'll look at in the next several chapters of what corporate worship is all about. And so beginning in verse 17 of chapter 11, it says, Now in giving the following instruction, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. There must indeed be factions among you so that the approved, the approved among you may be recognized. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper, for in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one person is hungry while another is drunk. Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you look down on the church of God and embarrass those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you for this. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you for this picture of what you have done for us and the instruction that it gives us in how we're to worship you. Now I pray that we would not only hear this instruction, but that it would change our lives, that it would change our worship that it would change how we gather corporately to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated this morning. If I had time, I would play a recording for you, but for the sake of time, I'll just relay some nuggets. Some of you may have heard before uh, Andy Griffith's monologue entitled, What It Was, Was Football. I usually like to listen to it about every fall myself. It was written by a University of North Carolina graduate back in 1949 after he had lived in the Triangle area for a while. And in 1953, Andy Griffith got hold of it, and it became Andy Griffith's big break. It was so popular and, and relayed to so many places. 
And, and so he kind of relayed what he, his own take on what this graduate had written, titled what it was was football. And the picture is that of a, uh, in the original story, a country deacon who for the first time finds himself in a crowd, not realizing that this crowd is making their way into a football game. He comes past what is a ticket booth, and the people are greeting and, and welcoming there, and he doesn't have a ticket, but he's so uh, caught up in the crowd, he just kind of gets pushed, and the next thing you know, he's, he finds himself watching a game, and he talks about, um, he doesn't know it's a game at this time, and he says there's crowds sitting on two banks, is the way he describes it. These crowds sitting on two banks are overlooking what Andy Griffiths de describes as a pretty green cow pasture. And he says in this green uh, cow pasture, there were these uh, men that had on black and white striped shirts. Actually, he said they were convicts with whistles around their necks, running up and down the field, telling the other, because he realized that they were actually in charge of this big old fight that was going to break out. And he came to a place, you know, somebody had told him to grab a drink, and so he bought him a big orange and had a couple of hot dogs, and somebody explained to him he wasn't supposed to be in there. And it's just, it's a funny story, it's a humorous story to hear Andy Griffith talk about this experience of being in a crowd at a football game and not really knowing what was going on from the point that they went out there with one of the convicts who pulled out a coin and they commenced to odd manning, odd manning to see who was going to get uh, this pigskin that they would, they would fight for and kick and bite and, and shove. And you can hear Andy telling the story. And finally, um, somebody explains to him that he's going to have to leave because he doesn't have tickets and, and how he just thinks on it later and, and kind of figured out that what it was was, was football. And, and when I hear that story, sometimes I wonder what might go through the mind of people who, who kind of get caught up in a crowd of worshipers. Some of you may be new to the whole idea of being in church, being involved in corporate worship. Now, I know that worship is much broader than corporate worship, the, the coming together to worship. The Apostle Paul knows, of course, he's written much about the worship of our lives, but there is a prominent place in Scripture, and there should be a prominent place in your life and in my life for worship with a gathering body of believers, a community of faith called the church that you and I belong to. And so I wonder if so many outside of this look in on it, or if they were to happen in on it, if they were come up with the same questions and say, man, I have no clue what they were doing or why they were doing what they were doing. I was just sitting back. I was just kind of watching, taking it all in, kind of got caught up in it, but I don't know that it all made sense. And so Paul would explain some things in chapter 11 here, he'll get us some things in chapter 12 and in chapter 14 about things that should describe, uh, things that should define, principles that should guide our worship. Now, again, this is, this is part of the letter where Paul's dealing with some abuses in, in worship. We'll get to some of those abuses later as well when we get into the spiritual gifts. Uh, but here with the Lord's Supper, he's dealing with the most visible form the most visible aspect that would be a part of their corporate worship. And it was demonstrating the fact that they were abusing this aspect of worship, that they totally missed the point and purpose of the Lord's Supper, but they were also totally missing the point and the purpose of corporate worship. Why do we come together as a body of Christ to do what we all can do on our own? Why is the Scripture, and you've heard people say this, well, I can worship God at home, I can worship God in the woods, I can worship God 
in nature. I can worship God. We can, and we should worship God in every possible venue. But why is Scripture replete with passages that tell us not to forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, to come together, to worship, to extend praises? And why is it important that we understand how to do that? Well, if we don't, there will be people just as confused, just as left out, just as uh, Andy Griffith was missing the point when what it was was football, we can miss out on what it was was really worship. It was true, genuine, authentic, corporate, community worship. And uh, the passages leading up to this, uh, everything that in, in those first uh, 16 verses, dealing with the whole head coverings and everything else, it was still talking about the corporate gathering and and it was talking about when you get to, to the church, your family shouldn't uh, get all confused about your roles and responsibilities uh, when you come together as a church, and there should be authority, there should be respect, and all of those things. Worship, though, was ultimately to recognize, it's in the very definition of the word worship, to recognize the worth and the worthiness of the object being worship, which is Almighty God. And so corporate worship has to do, and the word corporate, and you hear that in the business world all the time, don't you? The word corporate simply means of or relating to a formed or, or formed into a unified body. Of or relating to or formed into a unified body. And we are called the body of Christ. And so corporate worship, relating to one another, coming together, and he uses that phrase in this passage that we read, come together in, in verse 17, again in verse 18, then again in verse 20. And he says, when you come together, not if you come together, but when you come together, in other words, there's going to be corporate worship. It's part of your life and experience as a Christian. And there are some guidelines, and it's so important that we understand those guidelines, that we understand our relationship with God and that we understand the importance of us being in a community of faith, that coming together, as a matter of fact, those are the same words that are used to describe the most intimate type of coming together when you think of uh, the same Greek word there, soon erkamai, together with or to come together. It's, it's the word that was used to describe what had not happened in Mary and, and Joseph's life when she had conceived of the Holy Spirit before they, Matthew says, came together, soon erkamai. So it's the most intimate type of coming together in that passage, uh, but it was also used to describe when all the religious leaders, Matthew uses the same word, come together, when all of those uh, legalistic crowd, the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders, it says, came together in uh, Matthew chapter, I mean, sorry, Mark chapter 14, he uses that term, that soon Urkamai, they came together. So it could be for wrong purposes, it can be for right purposes, but there should be an intimate coming together of the people of God for the purpose of worship because that's the language that's being used here. So worship, in a broad-based term, just ascribing worth to a particular object, that existed in Corinth long before the church was ever started. There were 12 pagan temples in Corinth. There was a temple to even Apollo and to Eclepius. So supposedly the son of Apollo. And with these gods, you had to kind of earn their favor. You had to jockey for position. You had to give enough, and you had to, to do enough, and, and you had to kind of belittle others and kind of fight for position to stand out before these false gods. We were made to worship the true and living God. 
We were made to worship the God of this universe who created us, and we were made to worship in community and in harmony with others who also belong to him and acknowledge him as Savior and Lord. And so what are some principles as we look at this passage that that, uh, is illustrated by the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper, and he begins to say, here's what your worship should be like. What are some principles of worship that we can learn, that we can apply, that will help us as a church? And I love, I look forward every Sunday to me, for the church is a Super Bowl Sunday. Every Sunday is a big deal. I look forward to coming together with the people of God and the house of God and the presence of God and, and praying for the power of God to be manifest in his people. But how can we see that greatly enhanced? I want you to see some, some, some principles of worship. First of all, the sincerity of worship in this text, the sincerity of worship, the fact that we're not playing games The fact that we're not putting on a show, that we're not here to impress anybody else, but we're here for an audience of one, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to see that in this sincerity of worship, that it's got to be worship without division. We might call this single-minded worship. In these first three verses, 17, he says, you know, I can't really praise you. He says, you know, not only do I not praise you, it's really that you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Well, there were divisions. To begin with, I hear that you come together at church, there's some divisions. And he says, in part, I believe it. Paul knew that sometimes stories could be exaggerated, but where there was smoke, there was probably fire. And he says, so in part, I kind of believe that there's some division there. And so we need to kind of deal with that division. And he says, there must indeed then be some factions among you. They've got to exist, or we wouldn't hear so much talk about it, he says. Now, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 to 25, we read this. So if you are offering your gift on the altar, well, that's a great act of worship, isn't it? If you're offering your gift on the altar, when you hear about them offering a gift in in Haiti, like bringing a chicken, that's a great act of worship. And he says, and there you remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary. One translation says, make friends quickly. (laughs) If there's something between you and somebody else, deal with that so that you can come together in sincere worship, undivided. You know, and I know that if we ever harbor something in our hearts against a brother or sister in Christ, it totally disrupts our ability to worship. And so he says, deal with that. Get forgiveness. Make things right with your brother and sister in Christ. And then it will free you up to worship. So it's worship without division. It's also worship without distraction. Not only single-minded, but it's sober-minded worship. Look at verse 20. When you come together in, in one place, it's not really to eat the Lord's Supper, for in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. You guys are just like the pagans. You're kind of jockeying for position here. Let me be sure I get mine. Let me be sure I get a blessing from all of this. One person is hungry while another is drunk. Whether it's drunk from wine or drunk from gluttony, whatever the situation was, it was was this mentality of I've got to get what I've got to get out of worship and, and not really concerned about everybody else's experience. Again, playing games with worship. Today we might say, well, I'm not really playing. I just, worship is something I'm just getting through. 
And, and, and so many times, and, and teenagers, I see teenagers really struggle with this sometimes, but I'm so proud of so many of you, because sometimes in worship, while we're up here singing worship songs, some of the same songs that you'll do on a Wednesday night, I see you guys just worshiping and, and truly trying to engage and, and encounter God's presence. But not all young people are like that. Not all adults are like that. And, and it's kind of a bless me if you can mentality. And I'm not going to just let myself go and worship and be free talking to some teenagers recently, I illustrated it with, with like the difference I see at, at certain ball games. I'll use the national anthem for an example this morning. You ever been to an event where you see that when someone stands and sings the national anthem, there are those who are very patriotic and they say, this is time to focus. This is time to listen. They may put their hand over their heart and they may sing along with it. And you say that they're really engaged in that at this big event, at this big ball game, at this big race or whatever it may be. And you get cold chills and and it's a moment. Now listen, we're pledging our allegiance, our, our, we're, we're acknowledging our patriotism to a nation that is temporal, but a nation nonetheless to which we want to be good citizens. How much more as citizens of the kingdom of God, as children of the living God, should we stand in attention and offer our praise to Almighty God when we stand in worship? And if you've ever been in that moment when you look over and you see maybe a teenager, a lot of people like to point it out if it's a politician, or maybe a child. And, and while the national anthem's going on at this big stadium event, they're not standing in any kind of allegiance to the flag. They're not standing paying attention. They're, they're, they're just kind of maybe playing games, kind of doing their own thing, or I can't wait till this is over and, and for the ball game. And, and we say, there are people who died for this country. There are people who gave their lives for this country. And here we are singing the national anthem, this patriotic moment, and the band is playing, or someone is singing, and we're standing at attention, and we've got our hand over our heart, and chills are down our spine, and I can't believe these kids over here just playing, or this person over here is drunk, and they're just talking to their friend. How dare they show that kind of disrespect? But then when we come into the house of God, and we stand to sing the praises of Almighty God, the ruler of this universe, and we're just kind of like, oh, I just got to get through it. I don't really like this song. How many has ever stopped and said, you know, I really don't like the beat to the national anthem. It's just not my speed. But we'll do that in worship, and we're standing at attention to the Lord of the universe. And it's hard. And, and, and that person, that, that athlete who will stand there during the national anthem and stand there chest out and hand over heart, tear in the eye, and they show up at a church on Sunday morning and they're leaning over and holding the chair can we get through this? And the clock was set forward. I didn't get enough sleep. Because we don't understand the sincerity of the moment. Then it's worship without discrimination. It's not just single-minded worship. It's not just sober-minded. It's servant-hearted worship. In verse 22, we see that there were people who had been shunned because of the fact that they had lacked the ability or the income or whatever was necessary to participate. See, they were kind of going along with the pagan culture, the pagan ideas of worship with the false gods. That's not supposed to be the church. The church is different. The ch church is different. At the foot of the cross, the ground is level. And in so many places, and I pray it would never be so at Trinity Baptist Church, but in so many places, it's the haves and the have-nots. If you can't come the church dressed a certain way and looking a certain way and, and with the right social status, then you may not be as welcomed there. And may it never be the case here. May everyone, regardless of race, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of where you're from, 
may everyone always be loved and welcomed at the level ground at the foot of the cross, knowing that we are all recipients of the grace of God. This crowd in Corinth had been so influenced by the culture that they were consumer-minded. They were asking what we never ask about worship, and that's what's in it for me. What's in it for me? How can I get more of a blessing than everybody else? Rather than, how can I bless God and how can I be a blessing? How how can I bless God and, and how can I be a blessing? As a matter of fact, sometimes when we have to miss church, those of us who really love being a part of corporate worship, when we have to miss, we ask the question, what did I miss? But how often do we ask the question, what was I holding back? What was I holding back? By my not being there that day, whether I was sick or whether there was something that came up that was important or whether there was something that came up that really shouldn't have been that important, but we did it anyway, or whether we woke up on a Sunday morning and we said, well, the family's just tired, we had a late night and don't want to get up. We need to ask the question, not just what did I miss, but what did I have to offer that others missed by my not being a part of it? You ever stop and think about that? See, we're we're so consumer-minded that we're asking what did we miss, not did what did we have to contribute, our blessing to God and our blessing to others, that my lack of being there in all sincerity robbed people of a blessing. Sincereness, sincerity in our worship. God help us to be genuine, desire to see him. Then let's move to this most exciting part of the passage I think when he describes the Lord's Supper. He's talking about the subject of our worship. The subject of our worship, verse 23 through 26. The Lord's table is reminding us of what that subject is. I received from the Lord that which I also passed on to you. The night Jesus was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and he gave thanks and he broke and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He took the cup, this is the covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Why were they to partake of the Lord's Supper? And people may argue on what somewhat regular basis. Some churches do it every Sunday. Others are are afraid that if they do it every Sunday that people will not take it as sacredly and as seriously. And I'm all for taking it as often or not as often as you like, but we are supposed to at least do it on a regular basis. And so when we bring the Lord's table before us, the Lord's Supper before us, it's to remind us of what really our worship should be about every single Sunday. And that's about the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the subject of our worship. It's First of all, it's the crucified, redeeming Lord. The fact that that was his body that was broken for us. That was his blood that would be spilled for us. Remember in chapter 2, Paul said, I I chose not to know anything among you except for Christ and him crucified. I wanted to know Christ and him crucified. And so the subject of our worship will always begin with a crucified Lord who gave his very life for us. But it didn't end with the crucified Lord. Now we see the, 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 a picture of the second coming here, but before Jesus could come again, he had to rise again. And so we come together to celebrate a crucified, redeeming Lord, but we come together, we sunerkamai, we come together sincerely so that the subject of our worship might also be a celebrated resurrected Lord let me ask you this why do we worship on Sunday somebody might rightly argue that Saturday is the Sabbath and I don't usually argue with them I say it's okay to believe Saturday is the Sabbath but corporate worship in the New Testament among New Testament believers took place on 
the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, which was Sunday. Why did that change? Why did people who grew up in a religious tradition, who had always worshipped on the seventh day, on the Sabbath, why did all of a sudden everything shift and they begin to worship on the Lord's Day or Sunday, the first day of the week? And it was because of one event, and that's the fact that Jesus rose again on a Sunday, the first day of the week. Changed everything. And we're about to celebrate that on Easter Sunday, and we want to drive that message home to our community and to our world that we serve a living God, not a dead God. Our worship should be alive because we serve a living Christ, and we can now glory in the cross because he conquered the cross. Jesus rose on a Sunday. Not only that, he ascended there from the north shore of the Sea of Galilee in front of a crowd. He ascended to be with the Father, stepped right into heaven on a Sunday. It was the first day of the week. And then later, he sends the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. The Spirit comes on the church. You know what day it was? It was the Lord's Day. It was the first day of the week. It was on a Sunday that they, those 120 were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to shake their world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they made Sunday, the Lord's Day, sacred. They began to gather. The Bible kind of closes with this book of Revelation where John receives this picture of heaven and all that God has for us, these visions of worship, these visions of consummation of the ages, visions of last days. When was John in the Spirit and receiving the revelation? He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, Sunday, the first day of the week because we serve a living God who rose again on a Sunday. That's why I have hope. That's why my worship is going to be alive, because the one that I'm worshiping, the subject of my worship, is alive and well. That's why we can say every Sunday, up from the grave he arose, with a mighty triumph over his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain. Now he lives forever with the saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. That should be part of our worship on a regular basis. The celebrated, resurrected Lord, the crucified, redeeming Lord, but also the coming, reigning Lord. What does he say? He says, for as often, verse 26, as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It was to serve as a reminder, and our worship is to constantly serve as a reminder that our king died for us, that our king rose from the grave, and that our king is coming again to receive us unto himself, that where he is there one day we will be also to remember until he comes. Don't forget that he is coming. It's what inspired the words to be added to Handel's Hallelujah Chorus. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever. Sometimes I hear Jeff, you might have heard this before, you're young enough maybe that you haven't heard it as often. I'm sure that during those uh, days when worship was transitioning in a lot of Baptist churches, Jeremy heard, heard this word. But those 7-Eleven courses where we sing these new songs, they're just, there's no substance in the new songs because you say the same line over and over and over again, and we go back hundreds of years, and it set the church on fire to say, He shall reign forever and ever and ever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah, 
forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah. He shall reign, he shall reign. Why? Because Jesus Christ is coming again and his kingdom is forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah. And so repetition sometimes says, get the point. This is an awesome truth and you need to repeat it till it stays with you and you can't shake it. celebration of a reigning king who is coming again. Corporate worship and preaching can involve much and, and should involve much. There can be drama. There can be testimony. There can be now video capability. Some people go to churches today where they will watch another pastor via satellite. I'm grateful for technology and how it's helping us get the gospel. I have a hard time relating to that because as a pastor, I want to look the people that I'm talking to in the face, and and there's something in preaching that we call empathy, and I want to experience that, and I'm all for somebody watching a video for me, but I like to be in a church setting where somebody can see me, and I can see them, and we can interact and experience empathy one to another preacher and hearer of the Word of God. But the bottom line, worship is not about us. I, I can go to a place that things are so old-fashioned like my grandma and grandpa Brown's church used to be. If people were to stand and sing, give me that old-time religion, I can clap my hands and sing along and tap my feet and have a blast. But I'll tell you, I can go to a place where they do high church, liturgical church, where it tells you where to stand up and sit down in the bulletin and all that good stuff, and we can say the Apostles' Creed every time, and we can pray the Curie Eleison or sing it, and we can do a high liturgical service And if my heart is in it and my heart's in the right place, then I'm going to receive a blessing and it's going to move me in the deepest part of my soul. I can go to a place like Haiti, like where our team was last week, and not even understand the language, but see, there is a real love for God here. These people are willing to stay here five hours and all of a sudden in the midst of that context, I can get so much out of that celebration and say, God, how can I bless your name? Because it really doesn't matter the style. Or I could go to a place that some of you say, well, I couldn't handle this, but I could go to a place with a bunch of our teenagers where it's all smoke and lights. And as long as Jesus is the subject and not man, and they keep Jesus out front and not man, then I can handle any style you bring at me. But the subject of our worship, the subject of our worship must not be us. It has to be the Lord Jesus Christ who died, was buried, who rose again, and who is coming again. And that should be in the message of our preaching That should be in the message of our singing, and when we're singing that, and when we're preaching that, we are putting our roots deep in the faith, and we're helping our children and the next generation to establish their roots deep as well. The Italian poet Dante, if I can pronounce his name correctly, the one who wrote the Divine Comedy, Alighieri, somebody who's a a literature major can correct me later. He was reported to have failed to have kneeled in worship at a time when everyone else around him kneeled. And everyone went and reported him to the bishop. And they said, Dante failed to kneel at that point in worship. And when the bishop called him and asked him about it, he said, if those around me had been so immersed in the power and presence of God like I was at that moment, they would have not known what was going on around them either. What he was saying is they wouldn't have even noticed I didn't kneel if they had truly been worshiping like I was worshiping at that moment. The good news is the subject of our worship is the one who was crucified, resurrected, and is coming again. And yet he still, 
He still meets us where we're at. You say, well, if worship's not about me, then, then why am I? He meets us where we're at when we do that. Let's look at these passages. We didn't read a moment ago, but it's this last paragraph or two of the chapter here. There should, as a result of what we just saw, there should be a self-examination of our worship. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or, or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy way will be guilty of the sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. You didn't take seriously what Christ did for you in your worship. So a man should examine himself, look inwardly. In this way, he, he should eat the bread and drink the cup. Whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment to himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you and some have fallen asleep. If we were properly evaluating ourselves, we would not be judged. When we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we may not be condemned with this world. Therefore, my brothers, when you come together, sooner come I again, when, not if, when you come together, wait for one another. Be selfless still. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, you can come together and not cause judgment. And I will give instructions about the other matters whenever I come. Paul would later get into some of the other matters. But he says worship should be a time of self-examination. We offer that time for the Lord's table when we partake of communion together. But that is part of every time we gather together for worship. Looking upwardly should always lead to looking inwardly. When we look up and see God in all of his glory, when we sing like we were singing a moment ago, it should lead to introspection where we look inwardly. Remember Isaiah and Isaiah chapter 6 telling us what his experience was? In the year that King Uzziah died, he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up the train of his robe, uh, filled the temple. He saw the glory of God in a way that shook him at his core. And when he experienced that, when he experienced the presence of God, his response was, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Before he could go from looking upwardly to looking outwardly, he had to look inwardly. Before he could say, man, our God is an awesome God. I can't wait to tell the world. God had to do a work in him so that he could say, here am I, send me, and I'll take it to the world. Psalm 139, 23, and 24. The psalmist, we love that. We read all of that, Psalm 139. It talks about God being able to see us from the inside out. And then he closes us, and he says, he closes Psalm 139. Search my heart, O God. Search me and try me. See if there be any wicked way in me. Is there something that's not right in my life? He says, is there any way in me that needs to change? Lead me in the way everlasting. He says, if I'm not right with you, God, change me from the inside out. See, worship should be incarnational. What is the incarnation? That the God of this universe that we could never get our mind around put on flesh and came where we are. Worship starts with God in all of his glory, who he is in and of himself, and brings him to right where we are. That's the gospel. It's being able to start singing God and God alone, or holy, 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 and being able to conclude with amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I shared in our life group this morning, there's a a lot of times a debate over whether or not preaching and worship, should it be doctrinal in nature or should we seek to be more relevant and, and meet people where they are? And, and I think the church needs to understand and preachers need to understand, the 21st century needs to understand that sound doctrine, biblical truth does meet us right where we are. It meets us more importantly in the heart and, and in the soul that needs to be adjusted so that we might be able to live 
a life for His glory? What are the relevant issues of the day? Is anybody here maybe that deals with anger? That would be a relevant message for today. When we hear a word that says, be angry and sin not, doctrine is meeting us right where we are. Is politics an issue people are thinking about? Is that a relevant issue of the day? You better believe it. But when we come to a scripture or a song that says, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, we realize God is still on his throne, then we don't get so shaken by what happens in the political world. Is marriage and family important to us? Absolutely. But when you grow up on a song that says, love lifted me, when nothing else could help love lifted me, I might learn something about how to lift my family, and that's with a lot of love. See, our our worship is becoming very relevant in how we live our life. Purpose and calling, are people concerned about their purpose and calling? You come together and you sing a Tomlin song like, where you go, I'll go. You know, where you lead, I'll follow I'll follow you. Our worship is very relevant in those moments. Dealing with fear and anxiety and sing a song like, I know who goes before me. I know who stands behind. The God of angel armies is always by my side. Worship begins to become very relevant. Anybody dealing with addiction, have family members struggling with addiction, really difficult hang-ups and habits, and then we come into the house of God and stay under the Word of God and don't look for an excuse to miss out on the things of God. And, and, and if you grow, grew up in a church where you were singing one of Wesley's songs, like, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, and you get to that line, he breaks the power of canceled sin, he sets the prisoner free, his blood can make the foulest clean, his blood avails for me, that can bring that addict to an altar who will have a life-changing experience through their encounter with Jesus Christ and receive a fresh feeling of the Holy Spirit, and that's the victory they need over the bondage that they're in. We're struggling with grief and loss, a lot of us are today. When we gather together and sing, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future, my life is worth the living just because he lives. So many forms. Drama, symbol, certainly preaching, embrace contemporary forms to connect. You say, well then, pastor, why so much emphasis on songs? And I'll close with this. Why so Why so much? That's just not me, Pastor, singing. That's just not part of my worship. That's just not my gift. Folks, it ain't part of my gift either. That's why I sit on the front row, so none of you will have to hear me. I won't be behind you, right? I was doing pretty good this morning in front of Jeremy, right? But, but, you know, if if you're the one that's in front of me, I'm going to sing out anyway. I'm going to lift the praises of God. Why? Because it's not just a method, it is a biblical principle. Sometimes there are different methods to apply biblical principle, but some methods are biblical principles. Listen to these biblical principles. Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Ephesians 5.19, note specifically, he says we're to be addressing, verse 18 tells us we're to be filled with the Spirit. Verse 19, we're to be addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. In Psalm 98, in verse 1, it says, Sing a new song unto the Lord, for he has done wonderful deeds. His right hand has won a mighty victory. His holy arm has shown his saving power. He says, sing about it. God has revealed his saving power to you. Sing about it. Lift it up to him. And then Psalm 149, in verse 6, The high praises of God in your mouth will accompany that two-edged sword 
in your hands and give you victory over the enemy. When we make this word a big part of our corporate worship and we have a song of praise, he says, That's, you're doubly ready for the battle next week because you've got the word of God, the two-edged sword in your hand, and you've got the songs of praises in your heart and on the lips and you're lifting it up to him. Then what happens today has been like a pep rally that, that is ready to launch you out on the field of play. So it's not just methods, it's biblical principles that aren't to be compromised. Lifting our praises and getting into this word. All because we don't forget the subject of our worship is the Lord Jesus who died, was buried, and rose again. Would you bow your heads with me?